I, I don't typically feel the weight of events until it happens. And so if there's a big event happening in my life or in our marriage or in our family and, and it's up on the horizon or even in our church, uh, I don't sense the weight of it until the day shows up. I'm like, oh, this is happening. People usually ask me, like, how are you feeling about this? What, what, what are you thinking about this? And, and I'm aware of it and I've planned for it. And there's a lot of details and I think we've dotted a lot of the I's across the T's, but it doesn't really, I don't sense it. Anyone, you know what I'm saying? I don't sense it until it hits, and I'm like, whoa. Other people I talk with, they're like, I'm so amped about next Sunday. I'm like, yeah, uh, when we get there, I will be more amped than you. That, that, I, I'll tell you that. I've got more passion than you, but <laughs> I will not show it or it will not hit me until the, the actual day of the event. Now, the problem with this <laughs> for me is uh, manifold, um, and we could talk about that, but I'm not here to be counseled by you. I'm here to talk to you about the scriptures. And, and what I see here, though, is this, is that some of us, like me, don't feel the weight of an event until it happens, but then there's others of us that have had something happen to us, but we still don't feel the weight of it. And that's why we can't just talk about things, but we have to ask for the Spirit to push it into us. And that's what Paul is doing. Not that you just be aware of this event, but you would actually comprehend and sense and feel what has happened to you. And that's where we're going. That's the prayer this morning. Because Paul, uh, if you've been with us in Ephesians 1, we're just walking through the book of the Bible. Paul has moved from praise to now prayer. What was it 202 words of a, run, the longest run-on sentence in the Bible from verse 3 to 14? And now we have another long run-on sentence, about 100 words, but it's not praise anymore, it's prayer. So Ephesians 1, verse 15. Look at this prayer with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath your seat or a seat around you. And if you need one, take that one and take it home with you. But Ephesians 1, verse 15. Ben, did we go? We good? This is why... Since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. So, so Paul heard and received a report. To, to give you some understanding, this is about five to seven years since he was in Ephesus. Uh, he had spent two years in Ephesus planting this church, uh, uh, daily teaching uh, the scriptures teaching who Jesus w was, the Messiah from the Old Testament. He also did the work of the evangelists in the whole region. So many people in this whole region know of Jesus. The economy has been affected by people turning from uh, Artemis to worshiping Jesus. So it's uh, affected uh, the city, the region. And then later on, he, he was able to meet with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, uh, just for a moment, he said, hey, meet me as I'm traveling to Rome. But now as he's writing this, it's five to seven years later after he was there for two years. And now, after years and years of preaching the gospel to Ephesians and, and really so much of the known world, he's in Rome in prison for preaching Jesus. And what is the chicken soup for this imprisoned soul. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's hearing 
It's hearing of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints, which includes the Jewish people. These Gentile believers actually love the saints, including the Jewish believers. And I love this because this is a great summary of the Christian life, right? Like, what does it look like? Faith in the Lord Jesus and love for others. But if we want to really round out the triad, we'll get down to hope later, and that's the triad of faith, hope, and love. Faith in Jesus, love for others, and unabashed hope. That is a wonderful, quick snippet, summary of the Christian life. But in this prayer, Paul is not asking us to take this prayer as liturgy, or he's not saying, I just prayed this on one occasion. It's a summary of how he's praying for these dear brothers and sisters on a regular basis. Thanking God for them, thanking God for them, thanking God for what he's done in them. And when he says his prayers, he may be referring to the the Jewish kind of tradition of three prayers throughout the day, three set-aside prayer times, morning, afternoon, and evening. At these times and any other times, he's praying for them. He's giving thanks to God for them. When he's praying for the Ephesians, he's thanking God for what he's done in them. Now, if that's the case, what's happening here, there's, it seems wise that prayer is planned and ongoing. When you see him say, pray without ceasing, you see the posture of ongoing prayer, of just communion with the Lord, where we can pray while we work and go about our days, but also like Jesus, where he got up early and and got away from everyone and just communed with the Father, there's times where we need planned unhurried times with the Lord. And so it's both and of like, yes, structure your day. Have habits, disciplines in your life where you actually set aside time to commune with God. But also throughout the day, keep communing with God. Planned and ongoing. And that's what Paul's doing. As he's this planned afternoon prayer, think about the Ephesians, he's praising God for them. When something pops up and and he hears something about Artemis, probably in this context, he thanks God for what he's done in the Ephesians, and he never stops giving thanks. Never stops. Now, when he's giving thanks for them in this way, this is a glimpse of what we talk about honoring one another. Because you see, he wrote this to them, and he told them about what he's praying for them, their faith and love. And this is a glimpse of honoring one another, of a, a, what, what, what Sam Crabtree describes as a God-centered affirmation, that he's affirming them, he's honoring them, like I'm proud of your, your, uh, uh, your faith in Jesus, and you're sticking with him seven years later, and you're loving the saints, and you're growing, and more people are meeting Jesus, and I, I don't even know a lot of them because I haven't been there in five to seven years, and, and I'm just hearing this and rejoicing, but he's honoring them. with this God-centered praise. That, 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 that is a good lesson for us. One, that, that we need to be breathing encouragement into one another's life. As I've said, there's, never, there's no one in this room that's ever been too encouraged. So we need to breathe encouragement. We need to honor one another. We need to speak in and, and celebrate the evidences of God's grace in one another's life. And if you're like, I don't see anything, Paul saw something in the Corinthians. 
And if you don't know anything about that, it doesn't mean anything. I'll tell you, the Corinthians were wild. Just wild. Like, off the rails. If it was a Christian church right now, and you visit it, you'd come back and tell me a lot of things. You'd be like, they're not really a church. They're not orthodox. This is going on. It is, it is bonkers. And I would tell you, some of those things are also happening here. Because <laughs> that's what sin does. It's wild, right? But Paul's able to start off his letter where he needs to correct for, for about 10 chapters. He starts off with his letter celebrating what the Lord has done in them. And he does that here with the Ephesians. And he does that also with the Colossians. Why? Because we need to breathe that into one another. But not just breathe it. Not just encourage one another. Not just honor one another. But in a way that ultimately doesn't honor, praise, glorify the person, but the Lord behind the person. The Lord working in the person. The, the Lord who that person belongs to. You see, you see, giving thanks and praising God for what he's doing in you is a God-centered affirmation. And, and that's what we need to do. We need to honor the men and women in this room. The men and women in our lives. The kids in our lives. Like I, I honor Oliver Schlegel for his constant work. I've, I've asked Oliver a few things to do, but you know what? Oliver's done a lot of things for our church, never been asked for it. I honor Gerardo and Laura, very similar. Caring for, serving, ask them to help and they'll step in. I honor Ben Ingstrom for just now. Why can't I go to someone in the middle of a gathering and ask for some help? It's because I know he's willing to help and serve and bleed out and care for this family. I want to honor Kyle for stepping in and saying, this band needs electric guitar. And we all said, amen, right? But do you feel that? Like, this is what the people of God do. They celebrate evidences of grace. One another. They honor one another. They praise God for what's happening. Meaning, being in part of the family of God means, and I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep hitting this same note, People of God, we have a dad who is not critical and has been beating us up every day of our lives. The, the, the family that we're in has a father that has breathed life into you, ha, has done all these things that he said in verses 3 through 14 for you. He's built you up. He's secured your future. He has made you one of his. That's encouraging. And so, so with a father who's so encouraging and, 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 and with his good pleasure, focus on growing us more into the image of his beloved son than his people, speak the same way. See and look for those evidences of God's grace and tell them. Point them out. And encourage that person and bless them all to the glory of God. So he gives thanks for what the Lord has done, but he continues and asks for further revelation and growth. Verse 17, I pray 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you. See these two things. The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the Father. And two, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know three things. What is the hope of his calling? What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What power? According to the mighty working of his strength. Now, glorious Father here is emphasizing in this context more about God's power and not his holiness or splendor. And so we're saying the glorious Father, who has all power, which he's going to say in a few verses, in verse 19, how powerful he is with all the words in the Greek lexicon thrown at the wall to try to describe how powerful he is. But what does he ask for? He says, I ask the Father to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation knowledge of him. Not that they don't have the spirit, they do. They've been sealed with the Spirit. If you're in Christ, you've been sealed with the Spirit. He is, John 14, in you and dwells with you. So you're not praying for that. It's praying that the Spirit they already possess will grant them deeper wisdom and revelation in knowing God better. He's praying for a deeper work and ministry of God's Spirit in their lives. Isaiah 11, 2 speaking of the Spirit upon the Messiah, says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And this is what happened with Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And what Paul is saying is that the same Spirit that rested on the Messiah rests on you and provides us knowledge and wisdom and power where Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. In John 14, 26, and guide you into all truth in John 16, 13. But here's the issue to know God here is to know God with a close personal relationship with Him because He's made Himself known. You, you wouldn't know God if He didn't reveal Himself to you. But he's revealed himself, and he continues by his spirit to reveal who he is to you more and more and more. So this knowledge is more than intellect. This is about knowing more and more fully God's personhood and God's presence. To sense and feel, not intellectually assent to, but to sense and feel his holiness and his love for you and all of his manifold perfections and beauty. It's to experience his goodness and fatherhood. That's what it is. It's really, it's like the difference between knowing I'm married and being married to me. Like my wife knows me. She experiences all of me. She's affected by my presence. There's intimacy right there. That's what Paul's getting at. He's praying for the Ephesians. And for them to know, experience the Father more. And that's what I'm praying for us as well. That the Spirit would press upon us the reality of God's existence. This may include taking cognitive knowledge 
intellectual statements, true statements in the Scripture, and the Holy Spirit impresses it upon us deeply where it is no longer a thought, but it's a settled conviction. Like, this is what I through and through believe and I'm set on. Like, that's what the Spirit is doing. He, he's taking, he's doing so many things, that's why we're praying for him. But one of the things he's doing is taking the Word of God and pressing it upon your heart so that it isn't a document outside of you, but that it is your convictions internally. That you feel this now, like this is what I believe. This is what is fortified in my soul. This is what I'll cling to. These are the rails that I am set on, and I'll stay on this track for the rest of my life. That's what the Spirit does. That's what we need. We need to push it into our conviction, make a real conviction. We need to press into our heart so that we actually experience his existence and presence. And we also need the Spirit to not, hear me, not bring out new truths about salvation history or the nature of God or other doctrine, but the Spirit's work is to illuminate, to impress upon us the revealed truth about God in the Scriptures and to press it into us so it becomes our awareness, our, <laughs> our conscious reflections, our heartfelt convictions. That's what he's asking. Not that you would be able to just list off you know, 13 attributes about God, but that you would sense all 13 attributes towards you from God. Do you hear me? Not that you could pass a quiz, but that you'd be transformed. Because in his presence, we are transformed. That's what he's going after. D.A. Carson asked this. It's a big question. What is the greatest need in the church today? It's a big question, right? Churches in the East, global churches, our church. What, what's the greatest need in the church today? He says in the West, here we go. <clears throat> the one thing we need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. Now, D.A. Carson is one of the co-founders of the Gospel Coalition, a, a wonderful, like, to me there's some weight behind this. Because I know this, this author, this man who's, who's given his life for the church for about five decades. Say the greatest need is this, that, that what Paul is praying for, that's what we need. So question, if that, if that may be, if you don't agree with it, that's fine. But if that's may be true, then from us, we need to follow in the example of Paul and be praying for this. Be because this won't just happen from study alone. This has to happen with you and the Spirit's work in your sanctification. And so we're praying, asking, Spirit, please enlighten, show, reveal more and more of who God is. John 17:3, Jesus said, This is eternal life. What? That they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. To know him. To know him more. To know him more intimately. 
in knowing God, J.I. Packer uh, says that those who know God have four characteristics. I love this. A classic book. If you want to read more about God, yeah, go for it. And also pray this prayer. But he says, they have great energy for God, great thoughts of God, great boldness for God, great contentment in God. I love that. I think that's fair. I think that's an accurate statement to say those who know God have these four characteristics, but here's an idea for us, if, if that's maybe the flow, then let's stop focusing on our energy for God and let's keep pressing into our relationship with God. Like, <laughs> if energy for God is going to come from those who know him, then stop trying to conjure up energy and actually press into knowing him. As in, put your energy, your focus, your time on him and who he is and what he's done for you and ask the Spirit to show you more and more who he is. Because by example, he's leading us to pray for another. This, this is his heart in action. This is compassion. What does compassion action look like from a distance? Prayer. And so at close distances, it looks like prayer. By example, he's leading us to pray for another, to ask the Father to grant a work of the Spirit for your friends and your kids to know and experience the person and presence of God. So I just look around the room and see the people in your family and think about your kids and think about the men and women kids in your community group. This is what, this is what I want for you to want. I don't know if you want it, but I want it for you to want it. I want you to pray this so that your friends and your spouse, your kids, would not just be filled with information about God, but they'd actually be filled with the fullness of God. They'd be filled with his person and his presence in their life. Now, are we going to teach them? Yes. I'm going to pump so much information in my kids, it's going to ooze out their ears because that's an old saying. But, but I'm going to keep praying for what? For God to ignite all that information so that they would, with, with fiery affection, see and behold and enjoy the, the Father of glory. That's what I want for them. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for us. That's what I want us to be praying for. We pray for another that we would know God better. So give us the spirit. But also, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. So he presses further that this isn't a mere intellectual exercise. He says, your heart's eyes need to be open. Up to this point, no one said this, so Paul thinks, everyone thinks Paul has coined this phrase because there's no other language that's like, hey, your heart has eyes, open them. <laughs> but Paul's like, they do. And God needs to open your eyes. That your heart would take in this reality. Enlightenment, uh, enlightenment wasn't new for these folks. They're aware of enlightenment and illumination. Uh, with, the, with the cults and the rituals of Artemis and the other gods in Ephesus. 
just north of Ephesus, there was a text about Apollo that was found, and what was written on it was, Hear me, O greatest God, Comus, who lights up the day. I summon you, Apollo of Kleros. I want you to see that just because that's how we talk, that's how they talked about gods. Apollo, you shine your light on the darkness. Now, there's something different, though, between what they would claim and what Paul is claiming. Clint Arnold says, while they were familiar with differing claims of spiritual enlightenment, Paul speaks of something qualitatively different. He speaks of a knowledge of the one true God based on the Lord Jesus Christ and mediated by the Holy Spirit. Not that Apollos would just light up the day, but the one true God would lighten up our hearts and show us the truth and show us his glory. In our hearts. In our hearts. In your hearts. Not that, that, that you've fallen asleep and your eyes are closed physically, but that your heart needs to be awakened, needs to see. And the heart in the Bible is the seat, the center seat of, of thinking and choosing and loving. And so what he's saying is, I want your heart to come further aware of what God has done for you. It's like you're in a dark room and your eyes are closed and maybe you barely kind of open them, but you're trying to focus on something and see something. You can see a little bit. And so the imagery that he's painted is, if you're in Christ, you know what, what the Lord has done for you. But he wants you to know it more. He wants you to feel it more. He wants you to experience your salvation more. He wants you to taste all the blessings that he secured for you more. All the things that he said, verse 3 through 14. To observe more, to take in more, to see more, to experience more. So it's, it's, it's true, yes, but I want you to feel it and experience it. Since God has already blessed him in Christ with every spiritual blessing, now he wants him to actually feel those blessings, experience those blessings. Grasp the reality of these blessings, the implications of these blessings. John Stott says, what Paul does in Ephesians 1, and therefore encourages us to copy, is both to keep praising God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours, and to keep praying that we may know the fullness of what he has given us. So what I was saying, sometimes I don't feel the events until they happen. <laughs> but Paul is saying, the human heart actually forgets events that have happened and doesn't sense and doesn't experience and doesn't keep up. And we need to pray that we and you and others around you would know the fullness of what he's given us. And what does he say? Those three things, hope, inheritance, and power. And what is hope? Hope in Paul is, is oriented on the future the unseen future that you have been promised by the Lord. And so he says, salvation. You have hope in salvation. You, you will be saved fully from the presence of sin. What else? Righteousness. Resurrection in an incorruptible body. Eternal life. God's glory. That is our hope. And he wants, he's praying that your heart would be enlightened. The eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would taste more of this hope in the presence in the present, in the present, in the now, that you would sense more and more, that you would be filled up 
like a buoyant balloon with hope because it's secured in Christ. It's promised. And that gives great hope for these people, for us, in the midst of trials and darkness and afflictions and disorienting chaos to know where we are headed and have awareness of this future hope. This is really good news for them. A little bit different context for us, but for them, uh, they really believe that fate controlled the world or that the astral gods or the principalities and powers or the demons, whatever it was, controlled the world. One Stoic writer, uh, if you know anything about Stoicism, it's, it's the idea of like, don't let anything affect you. Your maturity is seen by uh, uh, not, a, uh, not having an emotional, visceral reaction to anything, essentially. <laughs> and so he writes this. Set your minds free, mortal men. Let your cares go and deliver your lives from all this pointless fuss. <laughs> Fat doesn't rule the world. Fate rules the world. Did someone fix that? Nope. Thousand apologies. He, he was not a stand-up comedian. He did not write that. Sorry. It's a weird roast in the middle of this. Fate rules the world. Everything is bound by certain laws. Eternities are sealed by predetermined events. No one can catch fortune by praying against her will or escape her if she comes close to him. Everyone must bear his appointed lot. So what's your hope? Just grin and bear it. Fates are determined. There's no hope. Don't make any choices. Really don't do anything. Just deal with it. It's already set. Womp, womp. That's what it is. But Paul says, on the contrary, there is one sovereign God who unfolds history according to his own will. He has called people into relation with him in and through Jesus. Fate is not the determining factor. The fate is not the cosmic rule that has dictated all of what your future is going to be like. You don't live in a, a ordered universe where you just put it out in the universe and maybe something will come back. You live in a fathered universe, in a fathered world with a father who has committed himself to you so much that he gave his son to die in your place. But his power is shown off in this, that Christ did not stay dead, but the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father forever. That's his power. So we have this great hope. I jump to the power, but I'm going to come back to the inheritance. Not only do we have hope, we also have the inheritance. And if you recall from last week, this isn't us inheritance. This is we are God's inheritance. So you don't get this. <laughs> I don't get this. What he's saying is, I am praying for the Spirit to show you how valuable, valuable you are to the Father. That's what he's saying. This wealth and glory, this riches, that, that's how the Old Testament would talk about kings. St. Chronicles 32 says, Hezekiah had abundant riches and glory, and he made himself treasuries for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and every desirable item. But he's not accentuating that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not accentuating that God 
is wealthy wealth and has all the gold minas, the gold coins in the world. He's accentuating that God's inheritance is us. His 401k, his future, his inheritance, what he's put all of his, his chips on is you. I, I don't want to overstep my bounds, but if, if you're longing to see Jesus, can you, that's what the Father is longing for, is to be with you because you are his treasured possession. Like he's looking, and he's outside of time and space, so I don't even know how this works, but he's looking to the future saying, yes, that's my people. That's my inheritance. That's what I get. It's like he's a trust fund kid, and what does he get on his 21st birthday? He gets us. Do you, do you, do you hear how crazy that is? That's what's We don't get it. We don't get it. We are his inheritance. We are God's possession. And so Hezekiah takes glory in all these riches and all these treasuries, and God takes glory in us. He takes joy in that he has made us his inheritance. And Paul is praying so that we would know this, that we would know how much God values and cherishes us. So may we feel the extraordinary value God places on us, and may we uh, experience the future hope God has promised us, but also see the power. May the Spirit help you know God's power, that it's incomparable, it's unexcelled, uh, when we sing that song by Hillsong that says there's no rival, I think that may be one of my favorite phrases in their library because it's so powerful. <laughs> the truth that he has no rival, that he has all power, is so powerful. Exodus 15 says, terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as a stone because of your powerful arm. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. That's from the Song of Moses. That's celebrating that God's so strong that he just moves rivers apart and then people walk on dry ground. And then he closes it and defeats enemies and says, keep walking. There's a, a magical papyri around this time that said, greatest God who exceeds all power, I call on you. So in this context with this folk belief, and rival claims of local deities to possessing extraordinary power, like they were used to. They were used to hearing all these differing people talk about their different gods and how much power they had. It's kind of similar to when you were a kid, maybe, and you had some buddies that talked about how, how strong your dad was and how much he would, uh, you know, beat up other dads or he's cooler than the other dads. Or, you know, it's, it's like that. It's like, hey, you know what? Apollo's really great. And like, no, Jesus is really great. Jesus is going to beat you up. And no, Apollo's good. Like, that, that's what's happening here. Like I say, no, mine's more powerful. Mine's more powerful. My daddy's got the most. Paul wants them to know and experience the assurance of them being united to and in relationship with the God of unexcelled power. Now, like all these blessings, Paul doesn't want them to have an information on the vastness of his power, but he would feel you would feel the sense, the magnitude of his power. And if you're like, what do you mean? 
Well, he says his power, and then he adds that preparational phrase, according to the mighty working of his strength. Now, there's three, three terms there for power. In that one phrase, three terms for power. Powerful working, might, and strength. Now, powerful working, uh, the, the Greek words behind those are dynamis energia, where we get dynamite and energy, Right? So according to what? To God's dynamite energy. That, that's his power to you. And then might and strength. That's what I was saying. It's like Paul's straining with the Greek lexicon to find out all the words that, that say anything about power. And he's like, did it stick? Like, what? I'm going to throw everything at the wall. What does stick? He's like, his dynamite energy and his mighty might. According to his powerful power of his powerful power. That's what he's saying. This is how powerful he is. And he wants you and I want you to feel the supremacy of God's power. Seen particularly in Christ's resurrection and exaltation. So what Paul is saying is this. Our father is the biggest and baddest. He can whoop all of the other dads. There's no rival so fam, there's no longer any reason to fear any demons, any gods, any occult witchcraft, anything that you've been a part of in the past because they no longer have any claim on you because now you belong to the one who has powerfully worked out of his mighty strength to make you his. Dynamite energy. And we have direct access to that dynamite energy. Again, he doesn't tell them to do what they've been doing. He doesn't tell them to call on angelic meteors or use incantations or formulas or magical symbols or certain rituals to gain access of power. That's what they would do. No, he says, I don't want you to experience, have a greater awareness of God's power already available to you. And as his children, this power is ours now. Power to witness the power of the Spirit to overcome sin, to pursue holiness, to fight spiritual warfare, to take risks for the kingdom. We have that power. But think about this. In magic and in Ephesus, with dark witchcraft and magic, they would use these incantations and rituals to gain power. But do you know what the end goal was? To use power to manipulate people. to gain some control over them, to win something, to be better, to be superior than others. And completely contrary, Paul is saying, that is weep, weak, <laughs> embarrassing power, and it goes the wrong way. I, <laughs> I want you to experience more God's power in your life and he doesn't give you this power to manipulate people, to use them, to, to get what you want from them, but to love them. You've been powerfully empowered to love. That is a whole new way of life for the, for the Ephesians, and it's a whole new life for us. Because we know, if anything, we, we've, we've become more and more, more aware of the past few years about power dynamics. 
We could see what's happening, be concerned about authority and abuses of authority. But we can't deny power. You can't throw out power and say, because this has been used, we throw all power. No, the power is there to love, not use. That's why he wants us to have a growing awareness of God's power to us so that we are secure and feel secure in him and have that confident hope before us, but also that we will pour out love and not wear out, die out, exhaust out, flame out. You can keep loving those people that are annoying in our church uh, and, and the people that are frustrating and the fights and the conflict. Why? Because he's given you power to keep going, to endure, and to keep loving. So I just want to say two last things is this. I want us to pray like this. I want us to pray for one another. To pray that the the spirit who's in our fellow brothers and sisters would come to awareness, more awareness, more and more of what, of who God is and what he's done for them. But also, I really want us to know and feel and experience and comprehend God in this way. Him and these future blessings. That we would sense the hope and the inheritance and the power that we would know this. That his power is unexcelled. And it's clearly put on display because there is no grave for the Messiah. If you want to question God's power, question the Son's location, and that will answer the power question. Because he's not dead and he's not buried. He's sitting right now praying for you at the right hand of the Father. Praying, I believe, this, even this for you. Always interceding, always pleading his blood for you. And so, I don't have anything else to say other than to pray for us so that the Spirit would do this in us. So we pray with me? Father, we do pray that you would grant us a work of the Spirit to know you, to sense you, to be made more aware of your presence in our lives. That Spirit, you would would push us beyond knowing about and really knowing intimately engaging and interacting and communing with with you and, and, and knowing and sensing more of our adoption and your love for us and our redemption in our future. Lord, I, I pray that you would press that, those blessings and your reality into our heart, our soul. You would lighten us. You would open the eyes of our hearts we're squinting, if they're a little bit open, Lord, would you open our eyes to see you in your beauty and 
glory this morning. Glorious Father, we ask this in Christ's name.